Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Well, welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast. I'm your host, Nate Aiken, and as always, we're talking about uh, what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century, and we're going to start a series on confessions, and there's a lot of conversation uh, in all the Baptist world, but particularly the SBC, about confessions, and so we went to we went and found an expert, uh, uh, Dr. Timothy George, uh, founding dean at Beeson, also author of Baptist uh, Confessions, uh, Covenants, and Catechisms, and so uh, Dr. George, thank you so much for taking time to be on. Honored to be with you, Nate. Thank very highly of you and your ministry. So we just want to get to know you a little bit first. Could you just tell us how you came to know the Lord and even how you sort of got into vocational Christian ministry? I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1950. I grew up in a dysfunctional family. My father was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother had polio. I was brought up by two great aunts, uh, neither of whom could read or write. Mm -hmm. But they took me to an old-fashioned, I would call it, country Baptist church in the city. Mm. We were in the inner city, but we worshiped. The people there still had the habits of being brought up in a rural environment. So that's that's where I came to know Christ. Mm. That's where I heard the gospel for the first time. That's where somebody told me things I still believe, like the Bible is the word of God. Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again. That's where I learned the rudiments of the Christian faith in that little inner city somewhat uh, irregular Baptist church. Hmm. That is wonderful. And how did you sort of move from there into the roles that you had? Uh, I mean, certainly Beeson, but the the things that came before that as well. I was always pretty good at doing two things, even from the time I was a little elementary school kid. One was uh, talking. I could always make a speech in front of the class. And so I spent a lot of my life talking to other people. I'm talking to you right now, come to think of it. But the the other thing I did uh, pretty well was read. I learned to read. I loved to read. And so I became a great fan of books. One summer, I checked out 50 books from the public library, all about history, mostly biography, and read them. That was my personal project. Nobody assigned it to me. I just did it. I guess I was uh, at nine or 10 years old. Hmm. So I advanced in... uh, the scholarly academic world through the, the grades, and I had wonderful teachers. Mm. I, I could not say enough good about the wonderful teachers I had who not only taught me stuff, but took a personal interest in me. Yeah. Now, this was the public school back in the 1950s, uh, and it was a wonderful place for me to grow up and provided every opportunity. When I got to college, I went to a state university in my hometown of Chattanooga, And some of my professors said, you ought to think about going to seminary outside of your region and Mm. outside of your denomination. That had never occurred to me. Mm. I had been told by pastors that I loved and who believed in me that if I were going to go to a Southern Baptist seminary, there were only two that would be acceptable. One was New Orleans. The other was Southwestern. Mm. They were the only two conservative seminaries at the time it was thought by these people. And so I actually made a trip to Southwestern and interviewed some of the faculty and thought about that seriously. But I had other teachers who said, well, why don't you think think about going outside of your region, outside of your whole area? 
So I applied to a number of schools like Duke and Vanderbilt and Princeton and Harvard and Yale and was accepted at a number of them and had to make a decision. So I decided to go to Harvard. Hmm. The, the main reason was I had written to what we used to call the Home Mission Board. We call it something else now, hmm. North American Mission Board. But back in those days, it was the Home Mission Board, and they had a, a church in the inner city of Boston, in a little town called Chelsea, First Baptist Church, that they had bought from the old American Baptist Convention for $10,000, I think. Wow. And they needed somebody to be the pastor of that church. Really, really, what my job was, was to be a chaplain to the handful of folks that were on death's doorstep and mm. say their funerals and close the church, and that was it. So I became the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Chelsea as I was a first-year MDiv student at Harvard. And that juxtaposition of studying and learning, my mind being stretched, while also being involved in teaching, preaching, working with what we call street kids, evangelism, that combination kind of shaped the way I think about ministry even today. Mm. And the work I've done here at Beeson, that's kind of our approach you you learn ministry while you do ministry, and you don't have to sacrifice one for the sake of the other. That, I think, is a, a heresy we ought to repudiate. Good. You grew up, obviously, came to know the Lord. You said in a, in a country city uh, Baptist church. At what point did you feel, I mean, again, you've written something on Baptist uh, confessions and so forth. At what point did you feel like you really were a Baptist and, and sort of embraced what Baptists would say about you know uh, ecclesiology and, and the distinctives we bring out of the New Testament, what were shaping factors for that? Well, I wrote an article one time about why I'm a Baptist, and it really starts even before I can remember, because that's the only thing I knew. That, that was the church I was taken to by these two great aunts. That They told me the gospel. I became a Christian. I didn't know at the time, I think, that there was much difference between being a Christian and being a Baptist. They seemed like all the same thing. Later, of course, as I grew and studied more and became, you might say, more uh, knowledgeable about the history of the Christian faith, I discovered there were other kind of Christians who were not Baptists. And so I was faced with the question of, why am I going to be this kind as opposed to that kind? Now, there's one other factor I ought to mention. We live right next door to the brother of these great aunts, Uncle Willie. He was a Mormon. I mean, he was a sincere, absolutely sold-out Mormon, and he took it as his project in life to convert me, this young uh, Baptist uh, tadpole, into being a Mormon. He wanted me to be a Mormon. It's fine to be a preacher, but you got to be a Mormon preacher. So he brought the missionaries out. We did the flannel graphs. I, I read the Book of Mormon, and that's really how I became a, a Christian and a theologian. On the front porch of Uncle Willie's house— on Fagan Street in Chattanooga, arguing with the missionaries, reading the Book of Mormon, arguing with Uncle Willie. He was a pretty good lay theologian himself, I have to say. And so I learned not to be afraid of ideas. I learned to explore ideas and learned how to, you might say, uh, I don't much care for apologetics. I think it's way overblown in a lot of ways. But I became kind of an apologist. Hmm. I, I learned some arguments uh, for the Christian faith. First Peter three fifteen. Be ready always to give an answer, and, and so that that's how I kind of got into that stream of being a Baptist, learning to defend Baptist distinctives not only against the Mormons but against even the Methodists, for heaven's sake, and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and all those kind of people. 
how shaping was the time at Harvard and at First Baptist Chelsea for either? Uh, I know in some of those seasons there was a threatening of uh, for some guys of their uh, Baptist distinctives and and their theology. But how was that time for you? A lot of my fellow students at Harvard, that is from the South or from a evangelical background, there were two or three other Baptists as well, had gone to Harvard to get away from their past. They were running away from it. They'd, some of them repudiated it or in the process of disowning it. That was not my case. You know, I had gotten whatever it is I got, the old time religion, deep wired from my great aunts in that country church. So I wanted to explore. I wanted to dig deeper. I wanted to understand why. And I went to Harvard for those reasons. And I will have to say that um, my faith was challenged. Yes, of course, it has to be challenged when you're confronting all kinds of ideas. Some of them are crazy out of left field. But I also learned to appreciate the value of thought, of argument, of thinking historically. That's maybe the greatest gift that Harvard gave me. I was already a history major as an undergrad, but I really was privileged to work with some great, great church historians, people like Heiko Obermann and David Steinmetz and my great teacher, George Hunston Williams. And they taught me about the Christian tradition, uh, how to read documents, how to think about the faith as it's historically uh, been given to us. And that certainly has shaped the way I've been a historian, a theologian, even to this day. Hmm. I've read several of your works, and I could we could dive into a, many of them. But the, the the topic in front of us that we really want to dive into is confessions. That kind of comes right out of things you're saying. So maybe let's start here with a with a pretty broad question: Why did Baptists uh, start writing confessions? I just finished teaching a January course here at Beeson called Baptist Confessions, Covenants, and Catechisms, and a few years ago uh, I edited a book by that title, which is just about to be reprinted. It's in press now. It'll be a new edition of Baptist Confessions, Covenants, and Catechisms with some additional material that we've added. So I'm looking forward to that coming out. I I really hope and pray it'll be of use to the people of God. So how did Baptists become a confessional people? The first thing I want to say is that before a confession is a document, before it is a text, it's an event. Mm. It's a happening. And that's the way the New Testament thinks about confession primarily. Uh, the, in, the, in the New Testament and in the early church, the basic place where confessing takes place is in baptism. Mm. We, baptism, we sometimes think of you're baptized upon your profession of faith, by which we mean you walk down the aisle and shake the pastor's hand and say, I want to join the church, and that's your profession of faith. I think a more biblical way to understand it is to say, Baptism is your confession of faith. Now, it's fine to come and make a public profession in a church and all of that, uh, but it's really baptism. That's what Jesus asked us to do in the Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So uh, that's how confession arose in the church. Now, with early Baptists, Baptists, uh, I think, are undoubtedly children of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. So somebody wrote a book called Stepchildren of the Reformation. That that may be a good good phrase. Uh, Baptists do not just uh, reiterate what Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Cranmer, the great reformers wrote and said. They have their own take on it, and they're critical at points of the of the mainline reformers. But at their heart, the great Reformation doctrines, especially two, we mm-hmm. call it the material 
principle of the Reformation, uh, which is justification by faith alone, and the formal principle, which is sola scriptura, on the basis of God's word written, and that alone, we base our theology, we make our claim. So a Baptist in that sense were deep-wired reformational Christians. When it came to some other matters of ecclesiology and how you relate to the world and the state, they took a different path, which they thought was more faithful to what uh, the New Testament says. So uh, Baptists have always been confessional people. Now, I have to make a caveat here to say there is a stream in Baptist life. It, it begins pretty early, and it continues down the centuries and is certainly present today which says Baptists are not confessional. We don't, the usual, usual way to put that is Baptists are not a creedal people. Right. Well, I think creeds and confessions are pretty much the same thing. It's just two different words for the same reality. But when, when people say Baptists are not a creedal people, uh, what do they mean? Well, that statement could be used in a legitimate way. If you mean by that, Baptists do not put any creed above the Holy Scriptures. We do not worship our confessions of faith. Our confessions of faith are not God. And so we need to be clear what they are and what they aren't. Uh, so oh, Baptists are not a creedal people in that sense of the word. And then Baptists are not a creedal people in another sense, too, that we don't think any confession of faith, however wonderful it may be, however well used by God through the years it has been, no confession of faith is equal to Holy Scripture. And no confession of faith is beyond correction and revision. Mm. And so you look at a Baptist collection, like the one I just mentioned that I've edited, or you look at uh, the book by Bill Lumpkin a few years ago. My friend Bill Leonard, I think, brought out a new edition of it. It has dozens, scores of Baptist confessions of faith. We have been a confession-making people. And that is predicated on the fact that no confession is beyond revision. No mm. confession is a perfect artifact of revelation. No confession is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. We have mm. to say that. And if you want to say Baptists are not a creed of people in that sense, well, I'm, I'm on your wagon. I think that's right. But mm. if you mean by that, we don't need any confession of faith. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we've got the Bible, the scriptures alone, and therefore we don't need anything else whatsoever. I think that's a very short-sighted view, mm. and it's one that's not borne out in our history at all. I actually, you, you got to my second question, Mike, because my second question was going to be, and, I, and, and maybe I'll ask you to uh, expand on it just a little bit, but why have confessions, at least in some circles in Baptist life, been seen unfavorably? Um, you know, Actually, I was going to quote your book, because you, you write this. Despite this aversion to creedalism, however, the idea that voluntary conscientious adherence to an explicit doctrinal standard is somehow foreign to the Baptist tradition is a peculiar notion not born out of any careful examination of our heritage. Can you talk a little bit about what were some of the—certainly uh, you've touched on, it's not, it's not equal to the Scriptures, it's not God, but what were some of the main pushbacks from the circles that saw confessions unfavorably? Uh, giving them obviously the, the the best of intentions to what that is. Could you help us understand maybe why there were some in Baptist camp, even though you have more than 25 confessions from the 1600s on that are well known alone, mm -hmm. uh, that we are confessional people. Why was it unfavorable in some circles? The quickest, deepest, truest answer to that question has to do with the fact 
that creeds have been misused in the history of the church. Mm. And they've been used misused in various ways, primarily through the the connexus between church and state. Mm. Starting in the year 380 AD, uh, during that great fourth century, which saw the articulation of the Nicene Creed and then reaffirmed at Constantinople in 381, starting in 380, the emperor at the time, Theodosius, made a coercion by the state, by the empire in his place, uh, a prerequisite of confessional conformity. In other words, you if you didn't conform to what this says, you, there were consequences. You could be uh, imprisoned. You might be sent into exile. Uh, at some places, even uh, capital punishment was was in place. Well, Baptists come along, and they know this history. The good Baptists have are, have always been uh, deep into history. Uh, l- let me take a side note and say John Henry Newman was a great convert to Catholicism in the 19th century and a great, great scholar, no doubt about it. He once said, to go deep into history is to cease to be a Protestant, in other words, to become a Catholic. That's what he did. He'd been an Anglican until 1845, and he switched horses and became a, Pro- became a Catholic. Hmm. I would like to challenge John Henry Newman, as uh, presumptuous as that may sound of me. I want to say that if you go deep enough into history, uh, then you, you cannot be a Roman Catholic. Mm. It is to become a Protestant, because that's what the Protestants thought they were doing. Right. They thought they were going back to the Bible through the early church, through the apostles, through the great councils and creeds of the church. And so when church and state are wedded in a way that have seemed to Baptists throughout our history to be very problematic, And you begin to use creeds and confessions as an instrument to coerce people to go to church, to make a certain profession of faith. And if not, you can be uh, imprisoned or or worse. Then Baptists have balked at that. Mm. And that somehow is deep wired into our soul, Mm. liberty of conscience. And we believe in that. And we, we, we think we can be both confessional and also uh, believing in freedom and liberty, that those are not contradictory. But it means that we have to offer a criticism of not only Roman Catholicism, but also some of our fellow dear beloved Protestants, historically, who have been very much in that in that boat. Mm, that's helpful. You you obviously, you were around uh, Southern um, before heading to Beeson. Um, you know, some of the people that will point out those that have been pushed back against confessions to some degree— would say maybe they have a mis- misunderstanding of priesthood of the believer or so competency. And you're, you're getting to some of that, talking about liberty of conscience. Can you unpack that a little bit more about why there was aversion to the confessions from maybe that um, that stream of Baptist life, but why uh, we would see that as inconsistent with our Baptist heritage? I don't know how many years ago it was, but it was early uh, after the controversy had pretty well shifted in a more conservative direction when the SBC passed a resolution on the priesthood of of believers. I wrote an article on it, uh, which was reprinted a few times, called The Quest uh, for Theological Integrity and the Priesthood of All Believers. Mm. And I challenged the idea that some people put forth that priesthood of all believers is to deny a confessional identity. 
uh, first of all, it's the priesthood of all believers, plural, not yeah. not the the believer. That's often how it's said by some Baptists, but it's not. It's the priesthood of all believers, and so it's a corporate concept. It has to do with the people of God gathered in covenant, one with another, with congregational life. That's really where confessions are are most uh, pointedly brought forward. And the priesthood of all believers means that everyone is made in the image of God. Uh, E.Y. Mullins invented a term, or he made great use of it, called soul competency. And I think it's been greatly misused to say, essentially, uh, anybody can believe anything they want to, and that's perfectly okay. Mm. No, that's not what it means. It means that before God, there is no mediator. There is no uh, in-between apart from Jesus Christ himself, as Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God, one mediator between man and God. It's the man Christ Jesus. So competency allows that to happen. So we have a personal, irrevocable relationship with God. We are responsible to God. And so we should speak not only of soul competency, but also of soul responsibility, mm. because we are accountable to God and to the community of faith of yeah. which we are a part. And that's the thing where confessions comes to play a role. Yeah. I think if you're just hearing this podcast um, and wanting to dive into confessions, that that answer right there was very important for some of the conversations we're having right now. So I want to ask what's maybe the biggest question Southern Baptists seem to be facing right now. I want to think about it historically. It's important we can talk about today. We may talk about that towards the end. How have confession? What have been the purpose of confessions among those who form them and ascribe to them? So, like, what's its role? What's its function? How does it govern the churches uh, that would ascribe to it? I think that's an important question for us right now. You know, I, I mentioned uh, not uh, too too many minutes ago uh, a great uh, historian. I think I mentioned his name on this podcast. R. Robert G. Torbett. He's no longer living. He was he was actually a Northern American Baptist, not a Southern Baptist, but he was very astute as a historian. I like Torbett's writings a lot. And he gave the following uh, five reasons for confessions. I don't think I can do much better, but he said this, to maintain, number one, purity of doctrine. Mm. Now, some people might think that's not too important, but uh, think again. Purity yeah. of doctrine protects the church from corrosion and from being uh, carried away by what Paul calls every wind of doctrine. Two, to clarify and validate the Baptist position. So that's, again, a little bit of what I was arguing with Uncle Willie about on the front porch. Uh, apologetics. Why be a Baptist? So we have to understand confessions as giving a, a form of uh our teaching and history vis-a-vis other groups. Mm. Three, to serve as a guide. This is important, I think, for the present moment, to serve as a guide to, Torbett said, the General Assembly or local association Mm. in counseling churches. In other words, uh, confessions can help a a denomination, it can help an association, uh, and certainly a, a congregation to get its bearings in the midst of a lot of uh, weltering about. Four, to serve as a basis of fellowship within local churches, within associations, and other general bodies like a state convention or the SBC. Mm. Five, to discipline church members 
as well as congregations. So this was Torbett's idea that a, a confession of faith is, is a basis for holding each other accountable. Mm. There's one word that often occurs in Baptist church covenants more so than confessions. Very important word. It's to watch over one another, mm. to walk beside one another in fellowship and love, and to watch over, to take care for one another. And that also involves the concept of church discipline. Uh, discipline is not meant to be punitive. It's meant to be remedial. It's meant to be corrective. And, and when confessions are as they ought to be, it'll serve that function along with the others. Mm. Now, I've used this analogy, Nate. Uh, I, I, I may have overused it because I think it's actually a good one if I invented it myself. Uh, I lived in Switzerland for one year. Our children were very small. Uh, and we had a small apartment there in the Alps. And to get away, to have a little breakaway, we, we bought an old Mitsubishi car. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or not. It's a, it's a car made in Japan. And we had an old bottle. It was, a, it was a piece of junk. And we would get out driving across the Alps in our old Mitsubishi with our two kids screaming in the back seat. And along the way, as you drove those twisting, curving roads of the Swiss Alps, I noticed that there were guardrails along the way. Mm. And they were very important to keep us on the road. I'm glad they were there. Now, you don't want to confuse the guardrails with the road. You don't want to start trying to drive on the guardrails or you'll be in imminent danger and peril. But the guardrails keep you on the road. They keep you focused in the right way. I think that's what confessions of faith have done down through the centuries. They are guardrails that keep us on the road. They keep us from veering too far in one direction or too far in the other direction. And we can, we can go to seed either way. We can be in peril either way. Confessions of faith. Now, because it's a twisting road and things change and time change, Every now and then, we have to repair those guardrails. We have to update them a little bit, not change the basic structure of them, because the basic structure is based on God's revelation in Scripture and on the great classical creeds of the faith. But every now and then, you might need to send a recruit out there and be sure the guardrails are still holding. That's good. That's, That's really what I think guardrails, uh, they are guardrails for our faith. That's really helpful. You make mention of this in your book. Um, but I think it's, again, important for our conversation right now. So for the first 60 years or so of the Southern Baptist Convention, there's no confession. Uh, there is obviously a confession that is holding Southern Seminary in place, but there's no confession for the larger denomination. Um, can you speak to why that may have been? Uh, again, I think you addressed this some in your book. And then why do things change in 1923? Yeah. Well, the SBC was founded in 1845. There, of course, were many confessions in Baptist life before that, including among Baptists in the South, particularly the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, which came to America from England. Yeah. In England, it was known as the Second London Confession of 1689, actually originally 1677, and was came over to America, adopted by the Philadelphia Confession, uh, the sorry, the Philadelphia Association in 1742. They added two articles to it. This is interesting. Why would they add anything to such a well 
respected, venerated confession of faith as the second London. Well, the two articles they added, one had to do with the laying on of hands of all baptized believers, not ordained to ministry, but laying on of hands. This was a practice that a number of Baptists advocated at the time, and they felt it was so important the confession had to affirm it, which they did. The second thing they added was the singing of hymns. Mm. Now, most of us today don't think that's controversial. Uh, We love hymns. I love hymns. But in those days, there was a strong belief, not only among Baptists, but among independents, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, that you should only sing the written words of God that are inspired in the Bible. And so Psalms only was a controversy. Can we use something besides the words of the Psalms? Philadelphia Confession said, yes, we can. It's okay for Isaac Watts to write some hymns with great godly words drawn from Scripture. And when the Wesleys come along, even though we may not agree with them in every way, they can write some pretty good hymns, and it's still worth singing today. So the Philadelphia Confession added these two articles. Hmm. And I I mention that to say confessions have always been in this process of being adjudicated, revised, restored. Uh, and now those can, if you re- go to the confessions today that come out of the Philadelphia Confession, you won't find those two articles mm. because that's not the issues we're confronting today. And so it's appropriate that we, in a very careful, godly, prayerful manner, examine our confessions of faith from time to time to be sure that they are uh, keeping us on the road and not mm. leading us astray. So back to Baptists. The Philadelphia Confession of Faith was largely adopted uh, throughout, throughout Baptist, by Baptists throughout America. In the South, it was the Charleston Association that adopted the Philadelphia Confession as its own, and so it became very common among Baptists in the South, including most of the Baptists that went to Augusta, Georgia in 1845. They came from churches and associations that had adopted already the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. Not all of them, but most of them. Now, not too long after that, there arose another confession of faith. We call it the New Hampshire Confession. It came out of New England, New Hampshire. And it was different than the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. Uh, My friend Mark Dever, who is a good Reformed Baptist, uh, uh, has this confession of faith for his church in um, Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill. Well, I don't think myself personally that it's it's quite as good as the Philadelphia Confession or the Second London Confession, but Mark seems to think it works just great because confessions can serve different purposes in different churches. Mm. It's a good, godly confession of faith. In the early 20th century, when the idea for the Southern Baptist Convention coming up with its own confession of faith, because the abstract of principles that you pointed to at Southern Seminary was just for that one institution and not for the whole convention, uh, the Philadelphia Confession was widely known, especially among uh, Baptists in the Southwest, where, for example, Southwestern Seminary as a confession of faith very close to the New Hampshire. And so it was felt by that committee that came together in 1925, we want to adopt a confession that can have broad consensus and agreement that doesn't sacrifice anything essential, but that allows enough breadth that we can get as many Baptists as we can under the tent. And they came up with what we call now the Baptist faith and message, 
which, as you know, has been itself revised now two times, yeah. 1963 and the year 2000. So that's how we got into the confession-making business as a Southern Baptist convention. Mm. I think it's a good thing that we have a confession of faith. It's a good thing that we revisit our confession from time to time and not regard it as the infallible and errant Word of God. It keeps us on the road. It, it's a guardrail, and it's one that we ought to honor, we ought to respect, and, and we ought, ought to promulgate as best we can among our churches. Mm. If I have a complaint about the way Baptist uh, and confessions of faith go, it's that we neglect them too much. It, it may be there in our books. Uh, in the olden days, we used to put the church covenant on the wall of our church encased under glass. There it was, a, a monument. Well, let, let's let's bring it out. Let's Let's use our technology on computers and make multiple copies of it. Let's read the articles. Let's have sermon series on mm. the articles of the Confession of Faith. I think that'll strengthen the people of God in the in the right way. That's, re that's really helpful. So in 1845, do they not do a confession because they all come from a place that has a confession and is sort of seen as unneeded? Um, and even in those early days, how did people sort of determine that they would not be part of the Southern Baptist Convention if they didn't hold to that to those common beliefs. Do you know how that sort of operated amongst Baptists early in the early days? Confessions of faith primarily worked with associations, with congregations, first of all, and then with associations. Mm. And it was often at an associational level that there would be discipline of churches that had wandered away from this or that article of the faith. And you read about this in our history. Churches would be we use the term disfellowshipped. I'm not sure that's a biblical term, but we know what it means. Uh, we, have, we have agreed to walk together in this light. And if you cannot in good conscience do that, then we don't condemn you to pur pur purgatory. But we say, you know, we, we want to walk, walk together. We want to watch over one another in love. And that's a part of what that means. So it was mostly at the associational level. That's why 1925 was something new for Southern Baptists. Before we had had associations at at congregational and associational levels, and now uh, we just because of the moment and the issues of 1920s, early 20th century, uh, it was felt it very important that we come together under a common confession of faith, which I think was a great step forward. Mm -hmm. Now, what were the issues? Well, they were different in 1925 than they were in 1845. Yeah, uh, they were. Uh, having to do with modernism, as it was called then, liberalism, mm. people who denied the uh, miracles of the Bible or sometimes the, the deity of Jesus Christ himself. And so it was it felt very important that we reaffirm this in a confessional way for the entire Southern Baptist Convention. And I think the Baptist faith and message has served us pretty well over these many years. Uh, I would not uh, argue for starting all over from scratch. We can build on what we have. If it needs correction at points, we, we're always free to do that. That's a part of the freedom that in Christ that we enjoy. Uh, but at the same time, we're also free to embrace and we're free to affirm. And, and that's uh, also very important. In those early days, and even now, you don't have to affirm the confession to seat messengers, but even but now you obviously, in any of the entities, have to affirm the confession. How has that, you know, you've, you've had obviously some who say we're not creedal, and you have that camp. 
you obviously have some that say we don't we don't expect full blown subscription, but uh, how, how should the confession operate as it pertains particularly to messengers in our institutions and in, uh, in our churches coming to the convention to vote, but also then in the institutions more broadly? You know, that's a decision for the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention to make. We don't have a pope. We don't have bishops. Uh, and and we don't uh, allow such in our midst because we believe the Spirit of God moves the people of God. And so I think whether or not confessional subscription should be a requirement for uh, becoming a messenger to an SBC annual convention uh, is a, a decision that has to be made by the messengers themselves, as every other decision is about membership. That all comes through what we call the membership committee, and eventually it's decided on the floor of the convention. That is as it should be. I would be cautious myself if I were giving advice. I would say be cautious about making confessions too particularist, making confessions too narrow. Uh, they need to be broad enough to allow as many Baptists in good conscience on the, who are agreed on the essentials of the faith and the essentials of Baptist identity. Uh, to come in and embrace it. So I'd be a little careful about getting too too narrow. That's mm. not to say the church or the association or the convention doesn't have under God the right to do so. Right. You know, uh, I have a colleague, you know, Beeson is an interdenominational school, and one of my dearest colleagues, been here almost from the beginning of our school, uh, Dr. Frank Thielman, he's a, he's a Presbyterian, PCA. And some years ago, he was on a discipline committee from his presbytery. Some church down in the hollers of South Alabama had gone off the wires. I don't remember what the issue was. It had to do with theology, maybe with morality. I don't know. But anyway, Frank Thielman was on a committee and from the presbytery and sent down to that church to instruct the church. And I, if, if memory serves me right, they ended up ousting the church from the whole denomination. They had the authority to do that because they're Presbyterians. Mm. They're wrong, I think, but they had the authority to do that. We mm. Baptists don't have, we don't claim that kind of authority. Yeah. And we don't want that kind of authority. Mm. And so that's why we are not only a confessional people, we are a covenantal people. Mm. And, and this book I wrote, Baptist Confessions, Covenants, and Catechisms, the covenant is very, very important for Baptists. And we need to have a revival of covenants. And I think we have. I think we're seeing that uh, both in confessions and covenants um, among our churches. Historically, it seems to me, and I, I don't know the history as well, but it seems to me that both E.Y. Mullins and Herschel Hobbs, who are the sort of main kind of proponents or the main authors of the 25 and the 63, were at least a bit hesitant about writing a confession, but ultimately saw the need uh, for doing so, any anything you could, like any light you could shed on both the twenty five and the sixty three, particularly some of their reticence to do that, and then why they ultimately still moved forward with uh, with those two different confessions, well, the same confession and the re revision in nineteen. Yeah, they they were wary that the confession would become an instrument of coercion, hmm. and and so they didn't want that to happen. From some of the same history I've been talking to you about for the last thirty minutes. Uh, they were concerned about that. They believed in liberty of conscience. And so the preamble to the Baptist Faith and Message in 1925 makes that very clear. At the same time, they also recognized that freedom of conscience belongs not just to one 
sole independent Baptist, but it also belongs to a congregation of God's covenanted people. It also belongs to an association of churches in league with one another. That's what covenant means, in league with one another. It also involves the whole Southern Baptist Convention. And so when we talk about this being a violation of our principles of liberty, we need to recognize liberty applies not only to me as one lowly individual with sole competency. It also involves the corporate congregation, association, state convention, SBC that we are part of. Mm, That's good. I'm going to ask you maybe just one final question by way of just if you were providing counsel as we step into some of these tricky things. But I may ask a two-part question. And essentially, it's there have been tensions always about how the confession, how strictly the confession should govern who we are. How have those tensions been managed in the past? How would you counsel us to manage those in the in the future? Again, not being too particularist, but also the confession meaning something. Uh, and then how would you say we should think through closely identifies to our confession of faith so that we aren't, again, too broad or too narrow, but can think rightly about how the confession should operate amongst Southern Baptists? in 2024 and beyond? So to answer both of those questions, I think you have to think in your mind of particular cases or examples. Uh, for example, if, if, if let's say, there was a Southern Baptist somewhere in, in the wide world of the SBC who came up with the idea that, well, Jesus was a good man. He did a lot of great things. We like him, but he really was not born of a virgin. That's just a an old myth that got into the dogma of the church long ago, and we need to get rid of it, and I'm not going to teach it in my church. I'm not going to believe it. Well, that's that, that needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed at several levels, I think. The congregational level, first of all, and most important of all, but also the associational level and the SBC. Now, if it's an issue not as clear-cut, let's say, as the virgin birth of Jesus, but something else, That's where you need, let me use this word. I want to use it carefully because it's a word that can be misunderstood and misused. But that sort of issue involves discretion. Mm. The New Testament word in Greek is dokimatso, dokimatso, to to be discreet, to have discretion, to show judgment. And and so you, you come across Paul in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 2 talking about the weaker brothers, the weaker brothers who, who, who need to be handled with some caution and care so as to win them back and not lose them completely. I, I think something like that principle would come into play, but it, it requires somebody to decide whether it's the whole SBC in joint uh, meeting, annual meeting, because we only meet once a year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or whether it's an association or whether it's a state convention or something, somebody has got to decide. This issue is important enough. It rises to such a level as to require that kind of disciplinary response. And the other issue we might think of, it doesn't. We can allow for some diversity here. Mm-hmm. And I know this was an issue in the debate over Rick Warren's church last year. It'll be ongoing an issue. Is this particular issue one that is it a hill on which we want to die, so to say, for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the convention? I'd want to keep my judgments close to what is the essentials of the faith, guided, again, by those guardrails, the great mm-hmm. classical creeds, the Christological Trinitarian 
classical creeds of the early church and our Baptist history and all of its diversity and wonderful uh, uh, going forward. Will you be uh, in Indianapolis for the 2024 SBC? I have another scheduled meeting at the time, but uh, I like to go to the SBC mainly because I see so many of my old friends and former students there, and it's just a wonderful fellowship time. I hope there'll be more fellowship and not so much fighting. Yeah, well, we are Baptist after all, so that's um, true too. We'll see. I and I think I think you've, you've been your book and just time with you. Uh, so, Doctor George, thank you so much. Uh, I would recommend people picking that book up. And I think the challenge before us, you've given a lot of good wisdom as far as the guardrails without being particular. So I think the challenge before us is how does the confession confession not mean anything? How does it go? How does it not mean everything? But then also, how do we not also create a confession within a confession, uh, I think, are all the things that we're wrestling through. And so we may even pick up, pick back up more conversation with you in the future to help us think through those things. Very well put, Nate. God bless you and the good work you were doing through the Baptist 21 and the pillar. That's a new term to me, but you're a pillar, aren't you? I'm a part, I'm the executive director of the Pillar Network. And actually, I've, I've got a book coming out on Baptist confessions, hopefully, Lord willing, and it's funny, I had read Torbit was my history book in, in Baptist history when I was ah. the first student, but I did not remember those five categories. And so they were very helpful that when you, right. uh, you share those, I mean, generally those are the things in my mind, yeah. but he said those very well. And so uh, I may have to pick out, pick up history of the Baptist and, and open it back up at some point. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. God bless thank you, Nate. Yep. Yeah. And thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.